Well, Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, if you would, open your Bibles. We're going to be looking at the, in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. It's on page 198. 198. Uh, and then just kind of put your finger in there. Um, it's a long passage. We're not going to read the entire thing at the beginning. We're going to cover it in chunks um, as we read with, uh, with each main point. Now for some context. God had promised Abraham long ago that he would make his offspring into a large nation. And he would give his offspring the promised land, which is the land of Canaan. 400 years later, after Abraham, God delivers his people out of bondage in Egypt through Moses. But due to their stiff-necked rebellion, God had them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Now the book of Joshua begins with the death of Moses. Under Joshua's leadership, this new generation finally takes possession of the promised land. And we also read that, that they um, eventually, the 12 tribes are given their allotted inheritance within the land in which dwell. And now God is about to give them rest. In the passage we're about to study, Joshua is closing in on the end of his life. And so he gathers everyone in a certain place called Shechem. We will see why this place is important later. And they gather under a certain tree, a terebinth tree, and we will see why this tree is important later. You see, after experiencing God's grace, the people of God were in danger of forgetting God and living for themselves. And so Joshua issues a challenge to the people. Will you fall away or will you commit to the Lord? Will you continue to hold on to those idols that you have in your backpacks, or will you renounce them and serve the one and only God who loves you and rescues you and promised to bless you? It's a message for us today, too, right? For a number of reasons. First, though God has given us rest in Christ Jesus, we too can forget God and serve ourselves, just like the ancient Israelites. We can live as if God is there to simply make our lives better or to simply make up for our shortcoming. And then there's the problem of idols. Just as Joshua calls the people to lay down their idols, so too we must lay down our idols that we may be holding on to. Now, not that we literally carry idols in backpacks like the Israelites, but we carry them nonetheless. Every human being, listen, either bows a knee to God or they will bow a knee to some godlike substitute. Idols tempt us all. Whatever you look to for life and joy and success is your idol. You think it is serving you, but oh no, you serve it. If you bow to the idol of successful business person, you will serve your idol by sacrificing family and health. If you bow to the idol of beauty, you will serve the idol by looking at everything and everyone through the, through the lens of image. You will judge yourself and you will judge others. See, whatever controls you is your functioning God. So as we begin, let me ask you and be honest with yourself. What is your go-to idol? When you're not clinging to Christ, what is it that you tend to hold on to? And so... Our New Year's kickoff sermon is what we have before us. We're going to look at Joshua's last sermon. 
And it will serve as a call to a greater awareness of our need for God to direct our lives, as well as given us an opportunity to commit our lives once more to him, that we may live with greater love and zeal. We will have a chance, like Joshua, to choose this day who we will serve. And so here's what we're going to be seeing this morning. Here's the big, big idea over it all. The Lord is the glorious, covenant-keeping God who redeems us by his grace. Therefore, we're to serve him. And when we say serve, it really means to love him and live for him. We're going to divide our time under three main points this morning. And basically, we're going to look at, because the Lord is glorious, covenant-keeping God redeems us by his grace, we must pay attention and put away and pledge allegiance. That is, we must pay attention to what God has done. We must put away our false gods, and we must pledge allegiance to the Lord and serve him. Before we begin, let me pray. Father in heaven, this already sounds like a daunting task. We often don't want to look inside our backpacks that we carry. We often don't want to look at any idols that we may have. Oh, we're quick to see them in others, but will we see them in ourselves this morning? And we pray that you, by your grace, would allow us to come again to Christ, to that cross, and lay our idols down and pledge our love towards you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The first point in Joshua's sermon is pay attention. Because the Lord is the glorious covenant-keeping God who redeems us by his grace, we must pay attention to what God has done. We see this in verses 1 through 13 in our passage. Now, as I read, pay attention to how many times the Lord speaks with the word I, as in, I did this for you. I did that. You ready? Here we go. Joshua 24, beginning in verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived among the, the, uh, beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Uh, then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come up upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak and the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Boar, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. 
and you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or your bow. I gave you a land on which you have not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Joshua gathers the entire nation of Israel at Shechem. It's the hill country, just a number of miles northwest of Jerusalem. And Joshua speaks as a true prophet of God. Thus says the Lord, God of Israel. And in verses 2 through 13, God is speaking through Joshua. And did you count how many times God uses the pronoun I or implies it? 20 times. I took your father Abraham from beyond the river. I gave him a son, Isaac. I sent Moses and Aaron. I brought your fathers out of Egypt. I brought you into the promised land. I drove out all those who fought against you. God is reminding his people all that he has done for them. He has done marvelous deeds on their behalf. As a father provides for and protects for his family, so has God. Now, why is God reminding Israel what he has done? I think for two reasons. To remind them of God's sovereignty and to remind them of his grace so that their hearts would delight in the God above all earthly things. We need this too. First, we need to be reminded that God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. God's people in every generation need reminding that God is the one who works all things for good in the lives of his people. In these verses, God reminds them of how it was. I who brought you out, I who brought about all these wonderful things that you've experienced. In verse 12, the Lord says, I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. It was not by your sword or by your bow. The Lord knows uh, human frailty. He knows that those who fought in those battles were likely to think they won the battle. No, it was the Lord who went before them and provided the victory. You see, problems arise when we start believing that we are responsible for the great things that God does and works through us. What ancient Israel came to realize centuries later, after they had finally did forget their God, well, he withdrew his hand of favor from upon them. And for us today who belong to Christ, know this, God can and will, in fact, withdraw his hand of favor and show his hand of discipline so that we may be humbled and turn to him. We should welcome God's humbling discipline in our lives. It causes us to lift our eyes to our sovereign Lord and trust in him afresh. Do you, do you know this? Have you experienced this in your life? So first the Lord speaks to his people and he, and he, and he reminds them he alone is, is sovereign. And if God is sovereign, then why bow to any false god or idol. It just makes no sense. We must serve the one who rules all things. Also, the Lord speaks to remind his people of his grace. Pay attention to my grace, God is saying. My lordship over your life has always been full of grace towards you. The first reminder of this grace is when the Lord reminds uh, them and us 
of how he called Abraham. You know, there's a big misconception people have with regards to Abraham. They, in their minds, they think that, that, you know, God was just looking all over the earth. If he could just find one person with a, just a little bit of faith. Well, oh, well, look here. Look at Abraham. He's a man of faith. I think I should call him. No, that's not what happened. In reality, Abraham was doing what? Worshiping other gods of his fathers. When, when God called him, verse 2, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Abraham's dad and his whole household served other gods. It was God who grabbed Abraham by the arm and said, I am God. Listen, believe, serve. God told Abraham to leave his home and travel to Canaan. Abraham did. And when he got to the promised land, here's what we read. It's in Genesis chapter 12. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Terebinth of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. In Shechem, by a terebinth tree, the one true God promised Abraham to be his God and provide for him. So Abraham took, who to serving other gods, took them and, and, and laid down his gods. And God said that he would give him a nation of people to live in this land, the very ground on which he stood upon. So as a result of God's grace, Abraham built an altar in worship. Abraham, in, at Shechem, under that terebinth tree, put away the gods of his household to serve the one true God. And now Joshua and all the people are at that very same place in Shechem under Terebinth tree. Do you see the significance? The second instance of God's grace is found in verse 13. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built. That's pretty amazing. And you dwell in them. You eat of the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. This is how God is. It is in God's nature to be gracious like this to his people. Though we don't deserve the blessings we receive, God gives them. And so our response should not be to focus on the blessings, but to focus upon God who graciously gives them. The God who called us in his grace and cares for us by his grace, he's no run-of-the-mill God that you make into an he is the good and sovereign Lord over all creation. With mercy and grace, he calls us to him. And with mercy and grace, he leads us in our lives. And so Joshua and the people are at that very same place, Shechem, under the terebinth tree, where God revealed his grace to Abraham. But will they respond like Abraham? Will they lay down their false gods? So first, pay attention. The second point in Joshua's sermon is put away. Because the Lord is the glorious covenant-keeping God who redeems us by his grace, we must put away any false god or idols that keep us from him. Our text is uh, Joshua 24, 14 through 22. Let me read that. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness, 
Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from, uh, from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our midst and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land, and therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sin. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Verse 14 begins with the words, now, therefore. In light of all that we just paid attention to, therefore, right? In view of God's sovereignty and grace, in light of who God is, put away your false gods. You know, it's amazing that after all God has done, that they're still holding on to other gods. But this is something that we see in our own life, and we have seen before as well. Remember Abraham's grandson, Jacob, Jacob traveled a long ways to find a wife, a woman named Rachel. Rachel's father, Laban, um, tricked Jacob, and he ended up uh, working for Laban 20 years. Uh, but God blessed Jacob the whole time he was there. Finally, finally, Jacob left with Rachel to return to Canaan. But Rachel had done something terribly wrong. Before leaving, she stole her father's gods and hid them in her backpack. After 20 years of watching God provide uh, and protect Jacob, she held on to other gods. Maybe she was hedging her bets like we tend to do. We say we belong to God, but in case God doesn't deliver on our dreams, we hedge our bets and cling to idols. But you cannot simultaneously cling to God and an idol. As Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money one will always rule your heart at the expense of the other. You know, it's just, it seems kind of like another life ago when I was back in St. Louis uh, as a youth pastor working there. I remember one girl in the youth group. Yes, she was the pastor's daughter. Uh, but she was a sweet girl nonetheless. But she said that she wanted to marry a Christian man. But added she wanted a good-looking, rich Christian man. <laughs> It wasn't enough that her husband loved the Lord and walked with him. It should be enough. It should be all that we need in a spouse. Someone who loves God above all things and, and seeks to honor the Lord in all they do. It should be enough. And yet we walk through life saying we're following Jesus while carrying an idol of wealth or security or whatever in our own backpack. Let me ask you, Christian, 
If a trusted friend were to open up that invisible backpack that you carry and rummage through it, what would they find? A.W. Tozer in his book, Roots of Righteousness, says, listen, it's kind of a long quote. You have to like lean in. Many of us Christians have become extremely skillful in arranging our lives so as to admit the truth of Christianity without being embarrassed by its implications. We arrange things so that we can get on well enough without divine aid, while at the same time ostensibly seeking divine aid. We boast in the Lord, but watch carefully that we never get caught depending on him. Pseudo-faith always arranges a way out in case God fails it. Real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift substitute. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse. Now back to Jacob and Rachel. After finding an idol in Rachel's backpack, where do you think Jacob went and what do you think he did? Here's what we read in Genesis 35. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with them, See, it wasn't just Rachel. <laughs> they all had idols in their backpacks. He said, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all their foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree. Where? In Shechem. A couple of observations. Jacob says, put away your, 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 your foreign gods. And what do they do? They do so. They obey. They're obedient. They bury them under a tree. What kind of tree? A terebinth tree. Where was the tree? In Shechem. Like his grandfather Abraham, Jacob found himself at Shechem, at that terebinth tree. And there too, he put away the false gods to serve the one true God. Jacob was motivated to do so because of God's grace. Jacob said, come on, family, we got to put away all of our, our false gods so that they can serve the God. What, what did he say? The God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Jacob has paid attention. He's seen God active in his life. And so he says, so he, so he focuses on the grace of God. In our passage, Joshua gathers Israel in the same place, Shechem, by a terebinth tree, and he takes this large stone in verse 26. And he took a large stone, and he set it up there under the terebinth tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. He, he tells, Joshua tells God's people to put away their false gods. It's amazing, like I said before, that people would still have their false gods. Israel had gone through one of the most amazing periods in the life of God's people, yet it was necessary for Joshua to urge God's people to put away their idols. So to us today, we have witness events that have far surpassed those that Joshua describes, and yet we still have idols that we're tempted to cling to. What are we to do? Joshua says, kill them off. The people handed over their idols, and Joshua buried them at the foot of a terebinth tree. 
Once and for all, their idols were gone. Not that you couldn't go and make some more. See, when Joshua gathered all the idols and buried them under the terebinth tree, what was he doing to them? He was defiling them. He was desecrating these idols, and he was killing them off. My friends, that is what we are called to do. But listen, we do not travel to a terebinth tree in Shechem. We go to another tree on a hillside outside of Jerusalem. We go to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus takes all of our sins and all of our idolatry and all of our idols, and he kills them all. And listen, just as the Old Testament people of God repeatedly went to that tree in Shechem, we are to repeatedly go to that tree on Calvary. Why do we go to the cross daily? Because is it not true? We're tempted each and every day to bow our knees to some godlike idol. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Joshua knows this when he challenged the people. He said to them, choose this day whom you will serve. False gods if you must, but as for me and my household, we choose to serve the Lord. It's important to know the Hebrew grammar here for the word choose. Joshua used a word that doesn't convey a once and for all act, a completed act, as in, I chose God one day in the past. No, he chose a present continuing verb there. I have chosen and will continue to choose the Lord. The people say yes. I don't know if you picked up on it. It's kind of half-heartedly, right? And yet there it was on offer to them. God's grace to to backpack-toting idol worshipers. And so, Christian, as we come to the cross daily and we say again and again with each new day, we say, I have chosen today to lay down my idols and I will continue to choose Christ and his cross. This is the Christian way. So far, we've seen pay attention to your sovereign grace of God and we've seen put away false idols. Lastly, Joshua preaches that we are to pledge allegiance because the Lord is the glorious covenant-keeping God who redeems us by his grace. We must pledge allegiance to the Lord. This is in Joshua 24, beginning in verse 23. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. What is going on here? Joshua is calling the people to experience the Lord's salvation. This is taking place right next to the sanctuary of God where sins are forgiven. Come experience the Lord's salvation. How so? Well, if salvation can be illustrated by a coin, right, with heads and tails, 
then salvation on one side of the coin involves repentance, and on the other side, faith. Salvation is not faith without repentance, nor is it repentance without faith. But that is how many live. Some will say, oh, I have faith, I believe, but they don't genuinely repent of their sins. Others will say, yeah, I've got plenty of wrongs in my life, but they never turn in genuine faith to God who will forgive them. Listen, if, if you're ever to experience salvation and it involves both a genuine repentance and a genuine faith. Now, that's what Joshua says, but I like his words better. Look at verse 23. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. Repentance is described as putting away of the foreign gods that are among us. I'm turning my back to those things. And faith is described as what? It's beautiful. Inclining our hearts to the Lord God. Listen, understand this well. If we're ever to experience real growth in our Christian lives, if we're ever to progressively put away our idols more and more, then it will only come when our hearts treasure Christ above all things. If we come to treasure Christ more and more, then we will cling less and less to our idols. In the early 1800s, Thomas Chalmers preached a sermon titled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. You can read it. It's kind of long, as those old writers used to write really, really long sermons, preach them. Um, but the title and the sermon of Joshua say the same thing. There is an expulsive power available that rids us of our idols. It is when we possess a new and greater affection for God. When God is our greatest good and longing, when he captures our hearts, this affection for God will powerfully push away any false gods from the thrones of our lives. Or in Jesus' words, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We must replace our idols with something else for our hearts to cherish. Does that make sense? Or else we'll go back to those idols. Oh, and also, we cannot replace our idols with some other earthly idol. <laughs> they will just enslave us anew. That is why Joshua says, put away and then incline your hearts to the Lord. Set your heart's affection on God. Does this make sense? Until God is your greatest good, you will serve earthly idols that will enslave you. So as we pay attention to the grace we continually receive from the Lord and we put away our false gods and pledge allegiance to the Lord, we come to be people who serve him. Ultimately, that is what salvation is, repentance, turning from our sinful idols in faith, inclining our hearts towards our God of grace. And we don't just do this one day in the past. We do this each and every day. This morning, Joshua has helped us to see that because the Lord is the glorious covenant-keeping God who redeems us by his grace, therefore we are to serve him, that is to love him, to live for him. Listen, as I said earlier, whatever controls us, that is our God. Listen, none of us serve nothing. We all bow to something. Do you understand that? Especially you who are younger here. You, you bow to something in your life. There, you, 
there is either God in your life or some idol that you bow to. None of us serve nothing. You may think you're above the fray. You may pity those poor Christians who commit their lives to serve God. Sounds so drudgery. It sounds like drudgery, doesn't it? You think you don't serve any God and you feel vindicated and free, but you're neither vindicated nor free. You are serving some functional God that controls you. As Bob Dylan sang, I'm not going to sing it, although I feel like I got his gravelly voice today. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. We are all controlled by whatever it is that is the functional Lord of our lives. We serve and we serve. Do you acknowledge this? None of us serve nothing. As with regards to idols, we need to understand they enslave us. Your idols, they never serve you. You think they do. No, you serve them. And you serve them. And you serve them. And they suck the life out of you. They suck the joy and the goodness out of your life. And then you die. But when God's salvation comes upon you, he frees you. He frees you from being enslaved to earthly idols. It's why Jesus said concerning himself, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Free to what? Free to really live as God intends us to live. Listen, hear me here. The best life you could ever live is one where your heart is inclined to the Lord. That's your best life you could ever live. The best version of you is you without all your idols. The only best future there is for you is the one where the Lord is at the center of your life. You, full of joy. You, with your heart inclined to God. You, praying, Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, not mine. I want your will done on earth. Heavenly Father, show me who you are. Lead me more and more in paths of righteousness. Help me to be salt and light for your glory. That's the best version of you you could ever live. Do you believe that? Listen, this is what it means to serve. It really, it's just to love God and to live for God. To have your life so wrapped up in him that his joy is your joy. In a few minutes, we're going to gather at the Lord's table. Please understand this. This is not an empty ritual. Far from it. It's a time for the people of God to walk forward with idols hidden in our backpacks. And once again, take them out in the presence of others. And we bury them at the foot of the cross, that tree upon which Jesus died. And we say to God and to all God's people that are gathered here, today I choose the Lord. Today I choose the Lord. And our hearts become more inclined to the Lord, do they not? And then we return next week with backpacks in hand and with hearts inclined to the Lord. And we say again, today I choose the Lord. Today I choose the Lord. Such is the Christian life. Pray.
Father, we confess now that our best life is a life lived with you at the very center of it. Oh, how our hearts are quick to wander, quick to stray, prone to wander we are. We're thankful that as we gather each week and hear the word of God preached and gather with each other and hold each other accountable, as we hear from your word, um, we are strengthened and nourished and fed. We, we are able to pay attention to your sovereign grace. Father, we thank you for that. And we're able to put away our idols. And we're thankful that at this table we're able to do that. And we now confess our need for you. Thank you for your grace towards us through Jesus Christ, who died on that other tree, not the terebinth one, once and for all for the sins of the world, we pray. Amen.